All right. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Living Truth. Why don't you stand one more time and just stretch a little bit. Get ready for this sermon. We're going to open our Bibles to Matthew 16. I do want to let you know that Zoe's in the back of the sanctuary today, and so are Willie and Angie helping with recovery. So if you've been through uh, an abortion and you just need to work through that, um, there's an abortion recovery ministry that uh, runs through Living Truth Christian Fellowship as well. Um, That's to bring healing to all of us because a lot of us have been touched by this subject. A lot of us were ignorant to it whatever the case may be. So I just want to encourage you to check out the table um, as we conclude the service today. We're going to be in Matthew 16. Since you're already standing, you know we normally stand for the reading of God's word. On this rock, I will build my church. We're moving a few sections ahead in the gospel of Matthew in honor of Sanctity of Life Sunday. The youth are in with us today for this special Sunday, but I do want to warn you parents that there's some mature content in this message I'm going to do my best to keep it um, as PG-13 as I can, but I need to describe a little bit of what was going on at the location that we're going to look at uh, so that you have a good understanding of it. So uh, Matthew 16, starting in verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They said, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ. That's the Greek form of you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. You can have a seat. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for the revelation that you gave to Peter. The disciples were certainly learning who Jesus was, but they had still a ways to go to really fully understand that they were dealing with God the Son, the Messiah, the Holy One of Israel. And they probably had a lot of moments like we do on our faith journey, Lord, where we, we first start to hear the Bible and we begin to grasp truths, but it takes a while sometimes to understand who Jesus is and understand the Trinity and many other very deep doctrines. But thank you that we're on that journey and the disciples were as well. Thank you, Lord, that you brought them to a place like Caesarea Philippi, which was a pagan uh, center of worship. It was probably one of the ugliest places in all of Israel. It, it was a place that first century Jews would stay away from. It was the red light district. It was a place of gross immorality and paganism. And it's there that Jesus, you took the disciples. And the question, of course, is why? What was going on? What were you trying to instill in their hearts and by extension in our hearts about our journey of faith and what we're to stand for and what the kingdom of God's all about? Lord, we want to lay this time at your feet and pray that you would be pleased in the way that we teach and the way we respond 
to the word of God. Your word is living and powerful. May it do its work in our soft hearts, I pray in Jesus' name. If you agree, would you say amen? Amen. On this rock, I will build my church. Now, scholars will point out that we, and we have moved a few sections ahead uh, in the Gospel of Matthew, in case you were wondering, for this special day. And just so you know where we're headed, next week, Corey Nichols is going to be with us. He's from Destiny Rescue. This is another ministry that we support. And uh, Corey works in human trafficking, uh, specifically in sex trafficking. And uh, Corey is going to preach from the book of Ruth next Sunday. He's going to tell us about their ministry. Corey has been around the world, and he has literally gone into red light districts acting as if he were a customer to try to save uh, both girls and boys from human trafficking. This is a, uh, a very serious problem on our globe. It's about as ugly as you could imagine. Um, it is, if you go to red light districts in countries like the Philippines or Cambodia or other places, there are literally folks, uh, kids that are sold into this lifestyle And uh, Corey has described this to us. They find themselves really in a prison. Uh, They are lied to and then they are abused and and it's very ugly. But we're gonna face it because as a church, we wanna be a light. So Corey will be here next Sunday. The following Sunday, we'll have Love Life with us. The local leader of Love Life will address us in a small uh, address about the walk that will happen. If I have the date correctly, it's the second Saturday of February the Love Life Walk, the 11th, is that right, Shane? The 10th. And we're gonna go out there as a church, and I want you to know that last year when we um, began the 40 weeks, Living Truth had the biggest single turnout of any church that year. Yes, that's something to clap about. And some of you, you, you got out of your comfort zone and you went, and it's, it's at a park across the street from Planned Parenthood, but we walked past Planned Parenthood and we just are in, a, in prayerful assembly. We're not shouting at anybody. We're not confronting anybody. We're just praying. And then we move past there down the alley to uh, Riverside Life Services where they're doing the work similar to what Zoe is doing. So that's ahead of us. And I would, I would submit to you that we have, we have a, an appointment with God today to hear what he has to say to us about us going into places like this, us confronting the darkness. That's really the text that's in front of us today. You can uh, look with me with the words now, Matthew, starting this, this particular section. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, you could pronounce this Caesarea Philippi because it was named after the Caesar, the Roman emperor. So in this particular region, Caesarea Philippi, let's talk about the location. If you're taking notes, you might just write in your notes the location. The location is Caesarea Philippi. It's actually uh, shown here in this. uh, This is a modern picture of the site today. The map will help us a little bit in terms of just placing our geography. You'll remember that Jesus has recently in the gospel story been in this region of Tyre, and Sidon, and he has met the Canaanite woman or the Syrophoenician woman and delivered her daughter from demon possession. Scholars believe that Jesus then left Tyre, went to the area of Bethsaida, and then came up to this area right here where the tribe of Dan settled, and that's called Caesarea Philippi. Now, in 
pre-New Testament times, what we would call Old Testament times, this location was a location of pagan worship to the false god Baal, B-A-A-L, sometimes pronounced Baal. And he was a pagan god, supposed to be the god of fertility and the god of the rain and the storm. Archaeologists have dug up statues of Baal, and he's holding a lightning bolt in his hand, and that was to depict what he allegedly had power over, the storm and the rain, to bless your crops. Remember, people living in ancient cultures really depended on the rain in agrarian farms and culture just for survival. So they looked to this god Baal, and one of the ways that they worship this god Baal is by making sacrifices to appease him to get his blessings, his fertility blessings. And sometimes that involved child sacrifice, as ugly as that is, uh, families would sometimes offer their children, uh, even on the, hot, the heated up arms of a god named Molech, and to the god Baal and the goddess Asherah. And the ancient world, this is how they believed that somehow you could get the blessings that you needed, even perhaps for survival. So it's unspeakable to us. It's, it sounds so strange and bizarre and evil, but this is what people would do. So in this area of the world, as... Uh, we go to the next slide, you can see that it's a very fertile area. This is a, a modern photo of the area. And up above, and kind of in the middle left, you can see a big opening that looks like a cave. So the ancients, uh, whenever they saw a fertile area with a lot of water, and these are the headwaters of the Jordan River, they flow down from what's called Mount Hermon, and they flow into the headwaters of the Jordan and then, and then go south from there. And so uh, whenever people saw lush areas and water, they thought that was a blessed area. And of course, it could help you with your survival. And at one point in history, up until the 1800s, the water actually flowed out of that bigger cave right there. I think the next photo may give us a different look at it. So the water flowed directly out of the cave, and then it came down from there. There was an earthquake in the 1800s, and it kind of redirected the water to up above but it still feeds that area, and it's a spring. And so the, the ancients, as they came to this location, this location was a, an area of worship, and they believed that that opening of the cave was the doorway into the underworld. They believed it was the gate to Hades. Now, in Greek thought, Hades was the place of departed spirits. In Hebrew, the Hebrew equivalent to Hades is a word called Sheol, it's S-H-E-O-L. And sometimes you'll see it in the Old Testament and it can mean the grave or it can mean the place of departed spirits. So people would go here in the Old Testament, they would worship Baal, they would throw sacrifices into the cave, into the water, and they would hope, they, they believed that Baal and some of the other gods went into this opening and went down into the water. This was ancient belief systems and they hoped that they would reemerge in the spring to bring more rain and crops. They went there basically for the winter. To try to guarantee their return in the spring, to bless you, you would offer sacrifices. You would worship, I'll put that in quotes, and you would hope that Baal would return in the spring to bless your life. They, uh, as time went by, You'll notice that the, the place is called Caesarea Philippi. There was Greek influence, and then there was Roman influence. Now, the Roman leader who built a, a city here was called Herod Philip. 
Hence the name Caesarea Philippi. He built a city here and he built a shrine to the emperor. We can go to one of the slides that will show us what the um, kind of the religious compound looked like. Let's, let's move ahead in our photos if you can. There it is. And so in Jesus's time, this is what you would have. You would have kind of a syncretistic religious center. Uh, to my left, there was the temple dedicated to the Caesar. There were platforms for different types of worship in quotes. There was a a temple to the god Pan. As time went on, this moved from kind of uh, Old Testament uh, pagan worship to the Greek gods and the Roman gods. And the Greek god that began to dominate this area was a god named Pan, P-A-N. He was half goat, half man. Let me show you a picture of this gross guy. This is the false god Pan. And he was worshiped As time went on, when Jesus took the 12 here, this was the God who was worshiped, and there was a temple here for him. Now, here's where we're going to get into a little bit of the detail that's gross, but you need to know what was going on. If you Google pictures of Pan, he lived in a constant state of sexual arousal. I had to have my wife crop these pictures to uh, make it appropriate for a church setting. And what these cutouts in the, on the rock had was figurines. We, we discovered this when they uh, found coins from the time. And in the little niches on the, on the side of the rock, there were figurines. One of them was Pan and the bigger one. Apparently his father Hermes was in one. And then what was called nymphs. And the nymphs were those that Pan had his way with. And he would chase them around the mountain. And there's a story, an ancient story, of a nymph that ran away from him and rejected him. And she went up to the top of the rock and she fell off the rock trying to get away from him. And her name was Echo. Ah, Man, what an echo. Anyway, just a story. But so when people came here to worship, and I put worship in quotes, what they would do is, as uh, we can move to show the, the precincts one more time, there were different, and this is, uh, if you want to go back, Pastor Michael has been here. I actually taught on location. We took 50 people to Israel uh, a few years back, and I was showing the people this particular location and explaining this. So let's move on to the next thing. So um, what happened at this location, and we can show the one with the, the actual temples, is they had stages or platforms. And the people would come. Apparently, every other year, there was the festival of Pan. And the way that they would express their worship is they would watch sex acts between, first of all, goats in honor of Pan. Then they would have sex with temple prostitutes to worship the god, in quotes. And then, believe it or not, they would have sexual relations with the goats. That's what was going on here. Um, things, things that seem so bizarre and so strange to us, but it was happening right here at Caesarea Philippi. Now, you have to ask yourself this question. Why would Jesus ever take his disciples to this location? This would be like going to the worst red light district imaginable. This would be like going to Bourbon Street with your 12 apostles. And something you guys need to know is that many scholars believe that the 12 disciples may largely be teenagers. 
Some people believe Peter was in his 20s, but all of the other ones may be teenagers. So teenagers, please pay attention to this because this is really important. Scholars believe that this is a sort of graduation day. Why, why Jesus takes them here, you have to think about. And why anyone would go to this place is almost unthinkable, but then we think about our culture. We live in Caesarea Philippi. It's available on social media. It's available on the internet. The gods of the ancients have come back to visit us in many different forms. In all the redefinitions of today's culture, whether it comes down to marriage or sexuality or the value of human life, everything is attempted to be redefined. So Jesus came here for a very specific reason. And you all know Jesus did what he did always for a reason. He wouldn't travel 25 miles north with his, his apostles to stay in some small village with a godly couple. He went here for a reason. And the reason is going to become clear. And I don't know how close the disciples got to this place, but maybe closer than we would be comfortable with. And it may well be that they were here during one of the pan festivals. I don't know for sure. That's just a little bit of conjecture. But Jesus has taken them to one of the ugliest places. In fact, if you were a disciple, this is the place that you told your grandpa and grandma you would never go to. This is the place that you swore to your mom and dad that you would never go there. Or if you ever went there, at least you would cover your eyes. But Jesus has them there for a reason. And he began to ask his disciples, look at the middle of 13. He said, who do people say the son of man is? Now Jesus, at this particular location, I've told you about the location. Now we'll move to the question the question is also in verse 13, and the question is an important one, and it comes up seemingly almost every Easter. Uh, I know magazines are almost a thing of the past, but Time Magazine and other Life Magazine would ask the question, who is Jesus? Question mark. The historical Jesus. What do we say about Jesus? And if you were to take a microphone around the Inland Empire, let's say you went to Norco College, or you, you went somewhere on the streets, you know, over to Dos Lagos, and you asked people, who do you think Jesus is? you would get a whole host of answers. Some people would say Jesus is a good moral teacher. Some people would say Jesus is a prophet. Uh, you would get a lot of different answers, but I wonder how many people would say Jesus is God the Son, the Messiah, the singular way to heaven, the Son of the living God. Some of you folks saw this video. A guy's near the beach by a pier, and he's got $20 cash in his hand, and he's saying... All right, I'll give you $20 if you could give me one Bible verse. And people walk by, no thanks, no, eh, not going to play, you know. And, and they keep passing him by. And then finally a guy walks up after a while of pretty weak responses. And they won't take the 20 bucks. You mean somebody couldn't quote John 3.16 for $20 cash? And then a guy walks up and he says, oh yeah. He takes the money and begins to rattle off multiple Bible verses. And he says, you want me to keep going? Some of you have seen this, and it's pretty cool. He had the word of God at the ready in his pocket, and he also made $20. Who do you say Jesus is? If you took a poll, the people would probably respond in all different ways, and I would say to you that probably, perhaps some of you have defined your view of Jesus based upon what other people say. And there's a lot that people say. In fact, every world religion and ism in our world has a form of Jesus. There's a Jesus in witchcraft. There's a Jesus of Jehovah's Witnesses. There's a Jesus in Mormonism. 
There's a Jesus of the New Age movement, and there's even a Jesus in Islam, and they have a high regard for him. But the question becomes, is it the Jesus of the Bible? Because Jesus asked the question, who do people say that I am for a reason, right? It sounds like this is an important life question for all of us. And Jesus is going to get a little bit more personal with the question. Luke 9.18 says it came about while Jesus was praying alone. This, uh, there's parallel accounts in Luke and Mark. While he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. He questioned them. So Luke adds that he had been praying. And he asked in Luke 9.18, who do the multitudes or crowds say that I am? We would assume that the disciples had their ear to the ground. They had interacted with a lot of different people groups and villages and places. And as Jesus was maybe touching a person or teaching, they were probably interacting with a lot of different people. So they probably heard all kinds of stuff. We think your master is this. We think he's that. They go on to say, well, some people, verse 14, are saying you're John the Baptist. Herod thought that John had returned from the dead to sort of haunt him. Others, they said, are saying that you're Elijah. We know that Malachi 4, 5 promised that Elijah would come before the great and terrible day of the Lord. Uh, so they were asking questions about Elijah. Uh, on when Jesus is dying on the cross, some people standing there said he's crying out to Elijah. The scribes and Pharisees believed that Elijah would come before the Messiah. So they said, well, some people think you're Elijah, but still others think that you're Jeremiah. Jeremiah was the weeping prophet of the Old Testament. He has his own book. If you've never read it before, it's a bit of a bummer book. But he has to pronounce judgment on his people. And he's, he's you know, weeping and weeping and weeping because they were beyond the point of hope that God had brought judgment, although... Of course, they would return after 70 years. And other people said, well, he's just one of the prophets. And if you look at verse 14 close, closely, you could see the different opinions. Some people think he's Elijah. Elijah ministered during a time of the rulership of Ahab and Jezebel. You guys remember that from 1 Kings. Very wicked couple. She, was, uh, she influenced her husband to build high places to false gods. And the nation crumbled under their leadership. That was Elijah. Jeremiah had to confront his generation, I've already explained. And these, the, the, three, the three named in uh, verse 14 all have one thing in common. They're gone at, when Jesus is alive at this time. John the Baptist is dead. Elijah is dead, or Elijah was assumed into heaven. And Jeremiah's gone. So they think he's maybe a prophet who's returned to the earth. But for what? Well, all of these prophets had one thing in common. They were calling the nation back to repentance. John the Baptist did that when he came baptizing. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, right? He was doing a baptism of repentance. All these, these prophets had one thing in common. They were calling the nation back to God, away from idolatry, away from secularism or humanism, back to the living God. And you could give the people credit. At least they called him a prophet. And Jesus is a prophet. He speaks to us uh, from God. He's also a priest. He's our great high priest. And he's a king. He has all three offices. But he's not just a prophet. He's not just a way shower. He's not just a good moral teacher. He's God in human flesh. Amen? God with us. And so here's the different opinions we could maybe put in our notes. Survey says... 
And that's what the people are saying. And so Jesus now turns to the the 12 in a more personal way. The NIV has it this way, but what about you? Who do you say I am? You see, I'm more comfortable when I can talk about other people. Well, that's what those people are saying. That's what they're saying. When I can sit in the stands and critique, you know, different points of view or what people do or say, that's pretty comfortable. But when it turns to me, and now I have to answer the question for myself, and let me submit to you that each one of you is going to have to answer this question. There's a reason that Jesus asked it, and I would also say it's probably, it is, not probably, the most important question you will ever answer. Who do you say Jesus is? He asked it. I'm not asking it. He asked it. And so, who do you say that I am? What about you? And Simon Peter, as he often did, he, was, he leads the list of the apostles in all the gospels. He's always the first name on the list of the 12. He was the one that got out of the boat and said, Lord, if it's you, bid me to come to you on the water. Peter was the one that pulled the sword in the Garden of Gethsemane and tried to protect the Lord. Uh, He did a lot of amazing things. And he spoke for the 12. And this is the only time in Matthew where his dual name is used. Matthew calls him Simon Peter. Simon was his given name. Peter was the name that Jesus gave him. It was his nickname. And Peter means rock or little stone. And I've heard some scholars say that you could call Peter Rocky. So you might want to write that down. That's really important. And so Simon spoke perhaps for the group, although he gets a personal commendation from Jesus. He said, you are new living, the Messiah. Christ is the Greek form of Messiah. It's Christos in Greek. It's Messiah in Hebrew. It's the same word, just two different languages. And it means literally the anointed one. You are the Messiah, he would probably say it in the Aramaic way, the son of the living God. Emphasis on living. Here we're standing watching all these dead idols be worshipped by people, this statue to Pan, all these weird stories. You're the son of the living God. You're alive. You give life. You're the Messiah. This is Peter's confession. We have the location, the question, and now Peter's declaration. Mark 8, 29 has it this way. He continued questioning them. Who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, simply put, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. Uh, Luke has it, Luke 9, 20, you are the Christ, the Messiah of God. This is Peter's great confession. And he makes it in response to Jesus's important question, 17. And Jesus answered and said to him, now remember, if Jesus is not the Messiah, this is the point where you're going to find out in your Bible, right? If Jesus is not the son of the living God, if he's not God the son, second person of the Holy Trinity, now you're going to find out. But Jesus will commend Peter, you've got it right. Now so far in the the gospel stories, we've, we've had a few professions of faith. We've had... Andrew tell Peter, we found the Messiah in John chapter one. We've had Peter in John six say, where else are we gonna go? You alone have the words of eternal life. 
and we have come to believe that you are the Holy One of Israel. You can jot down John 6, around 68 and 69. There's been professions, even in the boat in Matthew 14, after Jesus walks on the water and calms the storm, they worship him in the boat, Matthew 14, and they say, you are certainly God's son. Their eyes are being opened to the identity of Jesus, but they're still learning. And obviously the question is important to their own progress. Jesus is gonna move from the northern part of Israel And now he's going to make the trek down to Jerusalem and he's going to die for the sins of the world. This is the last leg of the journey. The Galilean ministry is wrapped up now. Jesus is going to go to Jerusalem and face off with the scribes and Pharisees and and, uh, face off with the enemy as he deals with our sin and the issue of death. This is graduation day. This is where you need to know what you believe And why you believe it? Because we're going to Jerusalem and I'm going to die and I'm going to resurrect, but I'm going back to heaven and you're going to take the baton and you're going to bring the gospel to places that you can't even imagine. Think about the the lengths that the kingdom of God has gone to in the last 2,000 years. It's amazing. About a third of the known world professes faith in Jesus Christ. I would say that the kingdom of God has spread far and wide, wouldn't you? And sometimes it has gone to places so dark that churches have been built in spots where some of this unspeakable stuff I mentioned earlier was occurring and it stopped and people were set free. And Jesus said to him, to Peter, notice, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. You are a blessed man because flesh and blood, it wasn't your brother Andrew or someone else who revealed this to you. Flesh and blood, a a human didn't reveal this to you, but my father who's in heaven. In chapter 17, Jesus is going to go up on what many believe is Mount Hermon, right there, right above the uh, location we're looking at, and he's going to be transfigured before Peter, James, and John. A voice from heaven will say, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Peter's gotten a supernatural revelation. The Lord has commended him. You're a blessed man, Peter. My father just gave you a revelation of who I am. I want to speak a moment to those of you who grew up in the church. Sometimes we we grow up in the church and we've heard a lot of the big Bible stories and we know some Bible verses and we went to vacation Bible schools and we went to youth conferences and retreats and all of that stuff. And we know facts about Jesus. We know the story. We know verses. But can I ask you a question? Have you had an encounter with the Jesus of the Bible, so much so that you know you're born again and you know deep in your soul you have a personal relationship. You know him. You don't know just facts about him. You know him. You see, this is the difference between head knowledge and a transformation. Amen? Now, I'm not going to tell you that everybody's going to get a supernatural revelation like Peter did, an insight into the person of Christ. But I'll tell you what, there are times, and some of you have had these moments where you moved from knowledge about God to knowing God. Amen? And I would submit to you that that's where we all need to end up. We need to move from just, you know, head knowledge of the living God to a, a relationship where the Holy Spirit is living inside of us and we are driven by the mandates of Christ, the the kingdom, the power of the Holy Spirit. So Peter is a blessed man. 
and he's gotten this revelation from heaven, and this is our last verse for this morning. We're going to spend some time right here. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not overpower it or prevail against it. Matthew 16, 18 is the most controversial and debated Bible verse in 2,000 years of church history, second to none. And here's why. Because the debate centers around this question. Upon this rock, I will build my church. Who is this rock? Now, there's a definite play on the name of Peter in Matthew 16, 18. Here's how it works, and here's where a little of the original language will help. I say to you that you are Peter, that's Petros, P-E-T-R-O-S. That means a rock or a stone. Some say it means a little rock, and it's in the masculine. Obviously, Peter's a man, and it's in a masculine form. He says, and upon this rock, that's Petra in Greek, P-E-T-R-A. That means a large rock or even like a fortress or something like a rock city or a stronghold. You guys know, uh, if you've been around the things of God for a while, that there's a city called Petra. It's a rock city in modern-day Jordan, uh, ancient Edom. And you can go visit the rock city today. And if you've seen the Indiana Jones movie, the second one, The Last Crusade, that's where that, it takes place. It's all filmed in the rock city of Petra. So two different words, Petros and Petra. Some scholars say, we, don't, we shouldn't make too much of it. Some say there's a significant difference. So let's start with the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church, for about the last 1,500 years plus, has said that the rock, this rock, is Peter. Peter is the first in a succession of bishops of Rome. He started it, and then it went down in succession into now what's called the papal structure of the Roman Catholic Church, or the Pope. And so if the Pope speaks ex-cathedra from his chair, Roman Catholics all around the world believe that he speaks with equal authority of the Bible, or perhaps even greater authority in some circles. And he's seen as the modern-day Peter. That's why so much emphasis is put on the Pope. And that's what they argue, that the succession of popes has led to Peter. He's the rock upon whom the church was built. That's why they would argue that they're the true church and you must be in the Roman Catholic Church. Now, evangelical scholars have said, no, Peter's a man and obviously he's gonna be rebuked in a few verses from here by Jesus, right? And we know how weak Peter could be. God's not building the church on any man. So evangelical scholars have said, no, the, the rock is Peter's confession. Jesus is the rock. He's the only foundation on which we can build. He's the... He's the, the rock on which we stand, etc. And Peter's confession is simply apostolic witness, uh, the, the doctrine of the apostles, Ephesians 2.20, on which the church is built. So it's Peter's profession and then the, the other teachings of the apostles that highlight this. Some modern evangelical scholars, no less than big names like R.T. France and D.A. Carson, have argued that Peter is the rock but without the apostolic succession leading to popes. They say you could call Peter the rock in the sense of he's got the keys of the kingdom. That's verse 19. He's going to go into the 
Samaria and to the Gentile house of Cornelius and open the door of the gospel to these people groups. So he's the rock, but not, it doesn't necessitate a line leading to the modern day Pope. Everybody with me? I know there's some technical stuff, but it doesn't necessitate a succession of other bishops of Rome. And so some modern evangelical scholars have landed there. And uh, it is interesting to look at the language because when you look at verse 18, you kind of wonder, why didn't Jesus, uh, Jesus just say to Peter, you are Peter and on you I will build my church. Uh, there's plenty of examples of you just using you. Why does he say, and on this rock, I will build my church? That's what's puzzled a lot of people. What is Jesus saying? Well, I want you to look behind me for a moment and consider where we are geographically. We're at a place where the rabbis called this the rock of the gods, small g. This is where pagan worship was practiced in multiple different ways we've already described. And the rabbi said that when the Messiah arrived, he would destroy the gates of Caesarea Philippi, this evil place. There's the Messiah standing there. This is the place. And what is there is a huge rock stronghold. And in fact, the little niches, and especially that cave there, were considered the gates to Hades. And here's another interesting layer. We're going to put it up on the screen. I'm sitting here on Wednesday night, and Sherman is teaching Judges 6, the famous story of Gideon. And the Lord tells Gideon to build an altar. This is uh, Judges 6, 24 through 26. Take a look. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and named it, The Lord is Peace. To this day, it is still in Ophrah of the Abizurites. Now, the same night it came about that the Lord said to him, to Gideon, take your father's bull and a second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal, which belongs to your father, and cut down the Asherah, she's the female goddess uh, with Baal, that is beside it, and build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of this stronghold. The New King James actually has it this way. Build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of this rock. The uh, NIV has it on the top of its height. The word there is translated stronghold in the uh, NAS and uh, rock in the New King James because the Hebrew word means a rock, a stronghold, or a fortified place of defense. Build it in an orderly manner Take a second bull and offer a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah. Cut her down, put her in, (laughs) use her for the fire of the offering, which you shall cut down. The word technically means a rock or a stronghold. Build the altar, get this, on top of the rock of false worship. And I'm sitting here on Wednesday night and going, woo-wee, yeah. Because that verse jumped off the page because I've been studying this stuff And to me, it's further validation that that's what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about building the church right on top of paganism. False belief, false worship, idolatry. He's saying, get out from beyond the walls of the church, boys. I took you here so you could get a good look at what you're going to do for however many decades you get. 
and then my church from there. You're going to go out into the darkest places of the earth and set people free. Now get this. Gates in the ancient world were not for offense, but defense. All ancient cities had gates. And if you had a great city, it would be up on a stronghold, up on a fortified rock, if you will. And the only entry point into your city would be to get through the gates. If an army was coming to destroy you, you would close the city gates. Jesus says, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. They won't stop you. You'll go out, you'll bust the gates open, and you'll set free all those people stuck behind those gates of death. Hades is really a picture of death. And him who had the power of death, that's Hebrews 2, 14 and 15, is Satan, and Jesus destroyed him, Colossians 2, 14 and 15, through the cross and the resurrection. Amen? Church, disciples, get down there where people are dying. Go and tell them that there's good news, that those gates that they hide behind, why do they go to that place? Because they think they find life there. They find a thrill there. They find things that appeal to the flesh there. Oh, you, you mean I can go there and do what I want to do sexually and then get fertility blessings plus? That's going to appeal to the flesh. Let's be honest. There's a pool to places like this for everybody inside and outside the church. Some of you are right now feeling like you're behind some gates created by this kind of system. Pornography running rampant, sex trafficking running rampant, redefinitions of everything under the sun running rampant, making us go, it's moving at such breakneck speed, I don't even know how to keep up with the next thing. What do we do? I could spend this whole Sunday morning decrying all the things that are wrong or tell you what we're supposed to be doing. What we're supposed to be doing is building the kingdom of God right on top of places like this. Amen? Amen. And I have to say to you that there's been times when I've been really fired up and I feel like I've been on the front lines and I've been in many situations preaching at places like this and there's been times when I've been too comfortable. And it's really easy for me to be a Christian pastor in Southern California and spend the bulk of my time in a church office with the people of God and just be cozy and com comfortable. I, I like it, frankly. It's, it's easy, and that's the problem. It's easy. So 2024 needs to be a time where we look at what Jesus said here. Are we taking the gospel where people are behind prison bars trapped by death and Satan and lies. They need his life. We are called to pull down strongholds. With a new view, take a look at 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with, reading from the NIV, are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to, to demolish what? Strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself against, up against the knowledge of God and we take captive every thought to the obedience of Christ. You know how you fight this battle, brethren? With truth. Truth demolishes strongholds. 
And Jesus takes the 12 up here to say to them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And what you're going to do is take my truth to set people free. Do you see them? I don't know how close they are. I don't know what's going on at this site. But he took them there for a reason. Do you see them? Do you see the empty souls? Do you see what they think is going to somehow satisfy the deepest desires of their life and even their inclination towards being spiritual? Do you see it? On that rock, I will build my church. Jesus says, I'm going to build my kingdom. You don't have to do it. I'll do it, but I'll do it through you. Think about the unfolding of your Bible. Off into Philippi goes Paul and Silas. Acts 16, in a very pagan-dominated area. Acts 17, he goes to Athens, confronts all that pagan and paganism. Acts 18, he goes to Corinth. Acts 19, he goes to Ephesus. What is he doing? In every one of these cities, this exists. And the gospel is bringing light to it. That's our job. Now, the good news is we have a lot of different ways to do that these days, right? One of them is we record the second service and it goes out. We have a radio ministry that's reaching, last I heard, 100 different countries. Amen? Isn't that awesome? We have people listening in the Middle East, people listening in Asia, Africa, all over the world. Hungry souls. They don't have what you have. They can't show up to a place like this and get in-depth Bible teaching. They, they hunger for J. Vernon McGee's ministry to somehow get to them. Amen? Yeah. May God bless you, my beloved. I'm going to build my kingdom. Just get on board. The gates of Hades won't withstand what I'm going to do. I have the keys of death and Hades, Revelation 1.18. I set people free. That's why, that's why I was over in Tyre and Sidon to help that woman who had the daughter who was possessed. Don't you know what I do? Don't you know what I'm about? I'm, I'm not about just a Sunday morning worship experience. I came here to set the captives free. I'm gonna show you one more thing and we're done. Up ahead of us is a very familiar section. section. Just take a peek. Right after Jesus begins to show that he's gonna die in Jerusalem and Peter tries to stop it. Jesus then says to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me, and on from there. Now, I want, to sh- want you to sh- see Mark's version. Next book to your right, let's turn there together, Mark 8. The story is in Mark and Luke. And I want you to see who Jesus addresses with these very famous words. Let me submit a thought that I think has great merit. I think Jesus is still here at Caesarea Philippi when he says these famous words. And I want you to hear them and see who he addresses. Mark 8, 34. Mark's laid out the same conversation with Peter, the rebuke, etc. And Jesus summoned the multitude, Mark 8, 34, He called to him the crowd, ESV, with his disciples. Now, park, pause. Who's the crowd? Who's he addressing? Is it possible that he began to yell down 
at the people right there at that worship center at Caesarea Philippi. I think there's a good argument to be made that he hasn't moved locations and that he's just now turned to the crowd. Maybe some people walked over. Who is your rabbi? Tell us more. Maybe some people were within an earshot doing all the ugly stuff that we learned about Caesarea Philippi. And he shouted to the crowd with his disciples and he said to them, now hear it in this setting. If anyone wishes to come after me, let him what? Deny himself new living. If any one of you wants to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways. Take up your cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's sake shall save it. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What shall a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation can't help but think of Caesarea Philippi. The Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory, in the glory of his Father and with his angels. I think that Jesus turned to the crowd and said, if any of you, are you sick of that paganism? Are you sick of doing what you've been doing? Are you sick of those lifeless idols and that dead path that you keep turning to over and over again and find yourself empty and empty and empty? Let me tell you, there's a secret to life. You'll find life as you die to self and live for God. It seems so upside down, doesn't it? I mean, the world's telling us that we should just satisfy every whim we have and we'll be happy. Let me ask you, how's that working for you? It doesn't work so well because God knows that living for the kingdom of God is what matters the most. We live in Caesarea Philippi, brethren. We're going to go back to it as soon as we leave here. It'll be there in your TV, movies, social media, internet, you name it. It'll be in in some of your friend groups. And the question will be, what are you going to do? Who do you say that he is? And with that, What does that mean for your everyday life? Maybe it means that you're going to have to take a stand in the office. Maybe it means that you're going to have to say, this is why I bow my head and pray when the sandwich comes and I'm with a group of unbelieving friends. Why do you do that? What are you doing? I'm thanking God for my meal. That's when the discussion starts about abortion in the office and you say, winsomely, not screaming at people, you know what? I believe that all life is sacred and precious and made in the image of God, and it's wrong to take a life. I'm not condemning anybody, but I'm telling you, this is the truth. This is where you start to make a difference in your everyday life, and and don't just check a box that you went to church on a Sunday. Amen? And I know so many of you have that passion. And sometimes that passion needs to be stirred again. Thank you, Lord, for this time in your word. This is an important message, I think, for this fellowship and for all of your people. It's an important message for my own heart. Oh, God, forgive me for the times when I've just kind of rested on my laurels. and I want to have a passion for souls. And people might say, well, you're a pastor, Pastor Michael. That's what you do, but it, it's... It's more than that. It's, it's a passion to reach people where they are. 
Oh, Lord, help us. Help us as a church to have just an incredibly fruitful year in 2024. Not, not for any person's glory, but for your glory. You've been moving in this church in a powerful way through many different people and ministries. And we pray that that would, that would be blessed fourfold or how, whatever you want to do, Lord. Lord, thank you for your patience with us as we try to get our bearings sometimes doctrinally and other times just in the way that we live, trying to figure out social issues. And it's hard sometimes. It's, it's, it can be a tough battle. But we know you've given us all the resources of heaven that we need to fight victoriously. And I pray that that would be the case for us this coming week, that whatever way you've spoken to us through this message, Lord, we would just simply lay down the flesh, deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow our master so that people can be touched around us, lives can be changed, and you'll be glorified. Would you keep your heart bowed just for a moment? If, if you find yourself in a situation where you're just not sure that you know Jesus, you're not sure that you could answer the question, he's the Messiah, he's my Messiah, son of the living God, this would be a great time to turn to him. Perhaps you've gotten a new insight into who he is. Maybe you understand why he asked this question or the backdrop a little bit more clearly, and you would say, oh, Lord, I, I want to be free. I want I want to break out of those prison gates. I want to have life and not be stuck behind the gates of Hades. Oh, he's a prayer away. He'll hear your cry. He already knows your heart's cry. Maybe you're a Christian, but you've, you feel like you've been in some compromise and you just want to get things right with the Lord. He'll hear that prayer as well. Lord, for this precious congregation, would you bless them, keep them, let your beautiful face shine upon them, give them peace and strength and an overflowing blessing by, by the power of your Holy Spirit, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We're gonna stand and do the last song. Would you stand with us?